if you were to believe British and American media, you'd probably think of Palestine as one half in an ancient conflict between two warring Abrahamic civilizations. Maybe occasionally you'd get a bit worried about those images of people being cable tied inside a mosque or kids being bombed in Gaza, only to learn that they'd brought it on themselves because of the activities of Hamas. Palestinians rarely get to tell their own stories, and on the odd occasion that they do, it's in highly limited terms. That's why today I'm joined by Mohammed El Kurd to learn about the realities of life under military occupation and what the media gets wrong about Israel and Palestine. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I just thought maybe a place to start is what was your childhood like in Sheikh Jarrah? You know, I get that question a lot, and I imagine people don't know how what's life like under military occupation, but the easy answer is it's quite bad, it's quite difficult, right? You grow up uh, sensing that having an army force on your doorstep at all times, having police surveillance, uh, watching into your bedroom at all times, fearing walking around the street with your hands in your pockets because you don't want to be accused of wanting to commit an attack at all times is the norm around the world. And then as you grow up and you start to read and you start to watch things, you realize that that is not the norm. And in, in some countries, people look at police to protect them and people look at the army to serve them and are not worried about losing their homes at any given moment, are not worried about being shot in the street at any given moment. Um, so this is an inherently... Uh, political experience that it forces you to be politicized as a child and it forces you to acquire uh, a world analysis because first of all you're constantly being accused of all kinds of things by people at all times and as a child you must learn your talking points and the UN resolutions and so on and so forth to be able to defend yourself and to be able to speak clearly. Do you remember having conversations with your family as a child where they were trying to equip you with the sort of tools and awareness that you needed in order to survive in that kind of environment. So one example from the UK and in America is that lots of people of colour, their parents will sit them down and have the talk about the police. Was there anything similar for you? I'm sure there was at some point. I mean, I don't have many memories of a talk, but police existence, uh, presence in our neighbourhood was so constant that it was almost self-explanatory. One of my favorite memories, I don't know if favorite is the right adjective here, but one of my favorite memories is my mother used to be a poet. And as a child, she would just like, when I was a child, she would just read her poems in the morning to my father. And then her and my dad would play this game where they would guess which lines would be sent back from the paper because all of the papers are censored by the Israeli military censor. So they would guess which lines would be censored. And then she would submit her draft and then she would get her lines red penciled. And that was maybe my first awakening to the fact that even not only do we not have the the freedom to resist or the freedom to defend ourselves, but we are, even our political thought is criminalized. Even our very existence is criminalized. I think that's my earliest memory of that. That was the thing which really struck me about reading from your collection of poems is that this wasn't just poetry as a means of self-expression, but it was poetry as a means of resistance and telling stories which were kind of up and against the gun, if you will. So was it your mother's experience that made you want to write poetry or did you get into it in some other way? Yes, I think my mother had, had a big role to play, but also when you're a Palestinian, when you're even just like an Arabic speaker, you are surrounded by poetry. We have a long tradition and poets were very respected historically, maybe not so much today, but they have been very respected historically. And as um, participants in the struggle against the Israeli occupation um, or any anti-colonial struggle, poets played a vital role. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not at all insinuating that I can go read a poem before a checkpoint and watch that checkpoint catch fire. Yeah, you're going to be right. like, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. <clears throat> yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But what I'm trying to say is that with poetry, you are able to inform and even fuel masses to protest, to resist. And a great example of this is um, when in 1962, I believe, 
the Israeli regime mandated Israeli land law, which classified 93% of historic Palestine to be state-owned land, causing Palestinian farmers and villagers their lands and properties. Palestinian poet Rashid Hussain then wrote a satirical poem called God is a Refugee. And in this poem, he made fun of this law. But not only did he make fun of this law, he was able to translate the legal jargon and bypass these suffocating bureaucracies, thus communicating what the implications of this law was to the Palestinian farmers. And that was able to fuel them into a strike, um, which later crystallized into Land Day, which, you know, but poetry has always played a, a vital role working together with the resistance. It's not, you know, it doesn't replace it. I mean, you spend a lot of time in New York and is there a big difference between the New York literary scene and the way people tend to think about poetry in the West and the way you're talking about poetry, which is it's supposed to have this political purpose. It's supposed to make people want to feel something and work collectively to resist injustice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a, I think this is a great question. I think there, there must be a criteria with which we, we gauge the, how good our writing is, not just poetry. Um, I think today the problem with poetry is so many poets write poetry for other poets and the more inaccessible it is, the more pretentious even it is, the better, the more critically acclaimed it becomes. They want to be like T.S. Eliot, where it's like, you've got to read 50 books to understand this one verse. Or just like gibberish on the page, (laughs) you know, words that make sounds but don't have any meanings. And I think poetry should be a lot more accessible, should be readable, readable. it should be for the people. And that's, that's the main purpose. Um, and that's at least what I try to do. It, it has to be uh, educational. And I know it's unfair. It's quite unfair to expect, you know, uh, you know, this whole idea of the single story and like expect brown people or Palestinian people or black people to be, to like abandon their artistic and creative practice in favor of telling stories that represent the collective. I know that is unfair to ask artists to do, but at the same time, in the case of Palestine, we have so little representation that it becomes a responsibility for us as writers to acquire a political education um, so that when we are writing, we are not throwing our people under the bus. And we, and when we are writing, we are also fighting back against this massive echo chamber of disinformation and censorship and erasure. Your grandmother plays this really large role in the book of poetry that you published. In fact, the name of it is taken from her name, right? Rivka. Yeah. Can you tell me about her? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think my grandmother was my moral compass, and I think she's like the the epitome of a good character um, uh, in a in a in a work of fiction or in a work of poetry. Because you know, be it in the Black tradition or in the Palestinian tradition or in many anti-colonial traditions, when we are writing about subjects of colonialism or subject of, of brutality, I think actually the Black tradition is much better about this than we are. But when we are, when when Palestinians, when we are writing about subjects of brutality, we we tend to paint them as perfect victims. And my grandmother, you know, she was uh, made a refugee in 1948 in the Nakba. Upon the establishment of the Zionist state, she had seen horrors upon horrors. She ran from city to city. She has been made a refugee. Then again, how um, old was she during the Nakba? She was born in 1917. So. She would have been, I'm terrible at maths. Oh my God. Um, She'd have been 31. Something like that. My father was four years old when the Nakba happened. He was born in 1944. She ran from city to city and she had to deal with the horrors of the occupation and she had to deal with Zionist abuse and settler violence. And, you know, in, in 2009, when the Israeli settlers, maybe we can talk about this later, but when the Israeli settlers took over half of our home, uh, they attacked her with a big TV, like these old TVs, they threw it at her, she was hospitalized, all of these things, she was truly a victim. But at the same time, my grandma, my grandmother had some tendencies that were not super progressive. Yani. She'll say things that sometimes can be classist because she had been robbed of uh, an upper middle class life, of uh, a comfortable life, and then rendered without a dime to her name, living in refugee camps and living in a refugee housing project. And I think when we want to write these characters that are compelling, we have to make them complicated and we have to include the entirety of the spectrum of their traits because I don't identify with a perfect victim. I don't identify with a perfect character. It's not compelling to me. And people identify with complicated 
with complicated people because we are complicated beings and this just bleeds in into and again maybe we can talk about this later but this just bleeds into how media uh, treats Palestinians we are so demonized we are we are portrayed as terrorists and our remedy for that is to portray ourselves as perfect victims who turn the other cheek or always wailing to say that we are human because we're so dehumanized. But in fact, if we want to humanize the Palestinian, we say that the, the Palestinian, like anybody else in the world, would have a natural reaction to oppression, would have a natural reaction to abuse. The Palestinian, like any other human around the world, enjoys a full spectrum of human emotions that includes rage and disdain, and it includes joy and laughter, and it includes contradictions, as well as you know weeping and crying in weakness. I was thinking, as you were talking about my own grandmother. So she passed away about a year ago. And in that process of mourning and the funeral and that period where everyone is trying to set down who somebody was, not in life, but for posterity, there was so much that was being lost because she became this totem of a strong woman of color. She'd come to this country when she was 17, completely by herself. And of course, it took immense strength for her to survive. You know, she did all of this political activism that took bravery, but she was also imperfect. She was also cantankerous and she could sometimes be really impatient with people. And she had this range of character traits, which made her as textured and as flawed as anybody else. And one of the things that I found so difficult was when I saw her narrative being set down, it was one of perfection like impossible perfection um and and do you did do you find it difficult was it emotionally challenging for you to push back against that tendency did you get pushback from other people perhaps in your family when you were writing some of those imperfections i honestly don't think my family even read the book or really most of them don't even know they wrote it um, <laughs> no i didn't feel any emotional challenges uh because you know i understand that in the sense of morning and in the sense of a funeral and you're on the podium at a church and you're talking about a person who died you want to portray them in this angelic light and blah 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 even though you might have hated their guts when they were alive but when it comes to like portrayal of an entire people when you reduce them to this perfect victim you are shrinking the scope of humanity for the rest of us um you are throwing so many of us under the bus when you are saying this victim is mournable i mean a great example of this is the late, amazing, beloved journalist Shirin Abu Akleh, who was killed um, by Israeli forces on May 11th um, of last year. And it wasn't enough that she was a, a, a Palestinian killed by Israeli forces um, in an occupied territory where the Israeli forces had no business being there in the first place. That was not enough. We had to emphasize over and over again that she was a woman and a, crush, and a Christian and she wasn't covered and she was wearing a clearly marked press vest and a helmet when she was shot and that she was a delightful person and that she had a pet dog. We had to have all of these qualifiers in order to, to conceive Shirin Abu Akleh as a mournable figure. I think that is outrageous. The mere fact that a Palestinian regardless of the content of their character, the mere fact that a Palestinian was shot and killed in the street in their own land in occupied territory is enough and should be enough to cause global outrage. But when we burden ourselves and we task ourselves with giving each other all of these qualifiers, um, you know, I mean, even with like when George Floyd was killed by American police, even when there's other victims of American police brutality. There's so much emphasis on their humane profession on the fact that they never heard to fly. And then, you know, other media actors want to assassinate their characters by saying, you know, they were addicted to drugs or they're misogynistic or blah, blah, blah. None of those things matter. The fact of the matter is the state shouldn't be killing people, let alone in occupied territory that they have no business being in. I want to talk about occupied territory because for lots of people, they will have become familiar with you and your work during the period of the Sheikh Jarrah evictions. Yeah. How did Sheikh Jarrah become one of the most fiercely contested neighborhoods in the occupied territories? Well, it's been that way since, uh, since I, I almost said forever, and I don't want to participate in that uh, trope of promoting this as an ancient conflict, but it's been that way since 1948. It's a very strategic 
um, location. It sits between or on the border of the eastern part of Jerusalem and the western part of Jerusalem, and it has seen intense fighting during the 1948 uh, Nakba. And it is honestly one of the last remaining Palestinian communities that has not been completely Israelized in occupied Jerusalem. Alongside Al-Aqsa Mosque, for example, we don't have those many spaces anymore. The, the city has completely been stripped of its uh, Palestinian identity. Even we see it in the Arabic that is erased from the street signs. We see it everywhere. We see it in the, the homes that you grow up walking past that are now demolished. We see it everywhere. Um, and today, Sheikh Jarrah is no different. It's surrounded by all kinds of embassies and, and consulates. It is a fairly central neighborhood, and it is inhabited by many, many diplomats who sit on their balconies um, in their expensive apartments and can smell the tear gas that is being thrown in our front, in our front yards. Um, but I think what made Sheikh Jarrah so special uh, is just how we approached what was going on in it. Um, Sheikh Zarah is one of the many, 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 many neighborhoods that are threatened with ethnic cleansing at the hands of the Israeli settler colonial regime, at the hands of the apartheid regime. Um, but it, it has been promoted for decades as a real estate dispute. People say, uh, journalists, diplomats, pundits say that there are these families threatened with eviction. And you know, eviction is violent and gentrification is violent. But Eviction does not necessarily mean that there is a foreign military force at your doorstep beating you up, tear gassing you, throwing batons at, against your body. Um, it does not mean that there is a settler organization that is registered in the UK that pretends that your home is its property by divine decree as if God is some kind of real estate agent. Wait, wait, so can you just explain this about the settler organization registered in the UK? Yes, Who are absolutely. they? Absolutely. There, um, there's a multiple settler organizations. So the, the settler organize, one of the settler organizations is called Ilad. It's registered in the UK and they're registered as a charity organization. In fact... Uh, so they've got like tax-free charitable yeah, of status. Course, of course. And in the United States, there's multiple. Yani another one we deal with is Nakhalat Shaman which is registered in New York as uh, as a charity organization. So they are tax-free and they sometimes even use taxpayer money to enact ethnic cleansing in Palestine and in Jerusalem. These, these are very well-documented facts that people gloss over. These are the people we're dealing with. And if, for, for example, it's so absurd, right? It's so absurd. You grow up with it and it's happening in your front yard, so you don't give it a second thought. But there's a guy from Long Island who is escaping... Um, fraud charges who decided to come squat in my home because some settler organization is paying him to do so you think you think settlers would just you know willingly come and live in the middle of palestinian neighborhoods who they say we are trying to kill them at all times we are blah 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 you think they are just gonna no they are, these are people who are paid by organizations to come and squat in our houses to make our lives a living hell i don't want to go into too much detail but we have been subjected to all kinds of abuses from these settlers um verbal sexual so on and so forth and it has always been done under the protection and in partnership with the israeli occupation police um, that is the fact of the matter. You have these fanatic people who pretend that God is their real estate agent and they travel from New York or from London or from wherever and they settle in our neighborhoods and they terrorize us under the protection of the state. I mean, this was something which you had hinted at earlier, which is one way in which the media likes to discuss the situation in Palestine is as millennia old enmity between yeah. two peoples, right? And it's a very colonial way of looking at it, like, yeah. oh, these warring tribes in the desert. But the story <sighs> is, oh, this has been a conflict for over a thousand years between these people. Nothing can be done about it. And the point which you have made is that, you know, your grandmother and your father are both older than the state of Israel itself. The state of Israel is relatively young. Um, so for our audience who maybe don't understand that this is something which has happened in living memory, how did 
um, Jerusalem become part of the occupied territories? How did the settler organizations come to squat in your house? When did that begin? Well, let's let's just go back in time for a little bit. You know, one to understand the Israeli regime, one must understand Zionism. And Zionism is a political ideology that was born out of Europe um, that has weaponized European anti-Semitism to take over Palestinian land and to establish a Jewish homeland in the Palestinian land. And, you know, we have people like, we have things like the Balfour Declaration in 1917 that gave away Palestine to the Zionists as if it was you know, Balfour's property to begin with. We have all of these um, promises, all of these governments that advance the Zionist project. And also when you look at the Zionist project, you understand that, that Palestine, even though there's this narrative and notion that it's uh, this like ancient conflict in this holy land, blah, blah, blah. Palestine was not always the destination for the Zionist project. In fact, the Zionists looked at Uganda um, if I'm not mistaken, they looked at Greece. They've looked at multiple places to establish as the Jewish homeland. It just so happened that it was Palestine. And this was long before 1948 that they, that they started. But we take, we sometimes fall in this trap and this idea that this is a conflict between Muslims and Jews, first of all, as if, as if Palestinian society is not so incredibly socially and religiously um, diverse. But it's also a, a false, uh, a false narrative. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't get my. I don't get my facts from holy books. History facts from holy books. No one. No one should. Yeah, no one should get there. I don't want to get in trouble for saying this. Um, <laughs> but no one should rely on a, yeah. a religious book for their historical facts. Yeah, or for political or for political uh, analysis. I mean, come on, it's not a book written 5000 years ago is not a it's not an it's not a, you know, a document, a legal document or like a document that can prove who owns what. Um but yeah, what 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 the material reality is, there was a majority population of Palestinians in Palestine, be it British mandated Palestine or under Ottoman rule, there's, there was always a Palestine in which Palestinians lived. And then what crystallized in 1948 was the near total destruction of Palestinian society, 750,000 Palestinians were expelled, about 15,000 Palestinians were killed by Zionist gangs and paramilitaries that later formed the Israeli army that ironically calls itself the defense forces, even though it's always doing the aggression. Um, calls itself the most moral army in the yeah, world. Of course, Yanni, and I can call myself a great singer. Um, you have over 500, uh, 500 villages that were completely depopulated and ransacked. And you have um, over 400 atrocities, over 70 massacres. I mean, I grew up hearing about um, the massacres, like the Tantura massacre, like the Deir Yassin massacre, where pregnant Palestinian women were stabbed and had their bellies sl split open before they were killed. Um, these massacres that are that now Israeli filmmakers are making films about and receiving awards for, that we have written books about for centuries, these same massacres that Israeli veterans are now like uh, gleefully admitting to on camera and describing without remorse on camera. Um, these things we grew up with hearing and they didn't begin or end in 1948. The ethnic cleansing has not stopped. Um, we see it every single day, is, be it in my neighborhood with these fabricated, falsified real estate disputes. We see it in Masafir Yatta. For example, let me just tell you about Masafir Yatta. Masafir Yatta is a, is a collection of Bedouin Palestinian communities in the South Hebron Hills in the occupied West Bank. These people have lived in their land and cultivated for generations upon generations, way before the Zionist state was even established. And just last, uh, last, just last January, an Israeli judge at the Supreme Court ruled to expel over 1,300 Palestinians from that community, for that community to be destroyed. If you look at mainstream media, if you look at British media, American media, about how they're reporting it, they will say Palestinians living in firing zones are going to be expelled from their homes, as if Palestinians just decided one day to go and live in a firing zone. What happened was, and what was confirmed by document, declassified documents leaked from the Israeli State Archive, is that the Israeli military in the 80s purposefully classified many 
West Bank lands, including Masafiriyatta, as firing zones, as military zones, for the sole purpose of expelling the native inhabitants, right? But you don't get that from the media. You also will not get from the media that the Supreme Court judge, one of the Supreme Court judges who ruled to expel these people from Masafiriyatta is himself a settler in the West Bank. And that is by the international law definition of what constitutes a settler in the West Bank in a illegal settlement. It's not even my definition. You know what I mean? But these facts you do not get from the media. This is an absurd, absurd, absurd uh, situation that is happening on the ground. And anybody looking at it, anybody with a common sense can understand how fucked up it is. But because the media is so entirely complicit in it, we treat it as though it's complicated and we treat it as though it, it doesn't make sense and as though it's ancient. But it's not the case. It's quite... It's quite recent and it's happening in the now, it's in the present tense. But let's talk a bit about the media coverage because one of the things that made me want to do this interview with you is that I saw a segment on BBC News where you were asked a question and immediately you had this smile on your face, not a smile of happiness, but a smile of kind of exhaustion, frustration. And you said, this question is so predictable. I could have written it myself. So let's pretend I'm a BBC News presenter and I'm interviewing you about Palestine. Sure. How would that normally go? Yanni, um, I would be the talking head here. Next to me, there would be a screen of my family and my family and my friends being beaten by settlers. Or there would be a screen of uh, Palestinian towns being bombarded. And you would ask me, but what about Hamas? That's how it goes. There's, It's the same. It's the same. Palestinians do not get called on the BBC or CNN to be interviewed. They are called on there to be interrogated. That is what happens. And the people who you're set up to debate, are they people who are knowledgeable about the history? Or are they people... They're who... fucking idiots. They're, they're, idi <laughs> they're idiots. They're idiots. And it's, it's, you get this subject, this brutalized, you become this brutalized subject that... All, all I'm asked to do is show off my bruises and the blood and the stains and so on and so forth. That's all I'm asked to do. And I'm robbed of the opportunity to present any analysis. I'm robbed of the opportunity to frame the situation. I don't have the expertise in their mind, despite my life, right? And so you have these foreign people who are salaried to bullshit on TV come and, and, and do all kinds of these circus acts. And I am surprised, you know, what, what happens is Israeli politicians, they don't receive pushback. They don't receive any kind of backlash. And in fact, interviews are quite friendly for, to them. Whereas when we go, there is so much disregard to the material conditions on the ground, to what is happening on the ground on a systemic institutionalized level, be it the military occupation or the... 15-year-old siege on the Gaza Strip, and instead Palestinians are shoved into a corner, asked to defend themselves, and interrogated about a sentiment that may or may not lie within their hearts. That's what happens. Um, and Can I ask you a, a personal question about how that affects you? Because one of the things I've noticed in our conversation, it's like you dot every I and you cross every T and you're demonstrating at every single turn your knowledge of the history and you will reference reference law and you will reference, uh, you know, UN resolutions. Does that become exhausting for you that you're constantly having to prove your own legitimacy in a way, in a hostile media climate? Let me, let me tell you a story. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much you know about poetry, but I, when I was writing my book, there was a line in my, in my poem that referenced a well-documented Israeli policy in which they confiscate the organs of dead Palestinians along other, alongside others, and they do it without the family's knowledge or consent. This is something that has been admitted by Israeli doctors. This is something that has been reported on on the ABC, on CNN, and on NBC. This is something that was well-documented in the 90s. Um, and I wrote a poem, and there was a line in it. And against my advisor's best advice, against my teacher's best advice, I mutilated that poem by adding a footnote that cited a bunch of articles to prove what I'm talking about because I knew I was going to be accused of some kind of bullshit bigotry. Um, and still, when 
when when the book was published, that line caused the controversy despite it being well documented and admitted to even by Israelis. Um, and this is what we have to deal with because none of these people that engage us are engaging us in good faith. They are setting up red herrings, these fallacies of debate that are seeking to distract from the pain point. I am on TV to talk about Israeli occupation, talk about a Palestinian kid who was just shot and killed in the street in cold blood. I'm on TV to talk about it. And yet the interviewer thinks it's appropriate to interrogate me about my sentiment. So I have to be careful. I have to, I understand that I have a right to feel whatever way I feel about the people that oppress me, but I'm careful and I'm smart and I'm a good speaker or whatever. Um, but does it get ex exhausting to a certain degree? And I, I have had hundreds of thousands, not thousands, but like hundreds and hundreds of uh, articles written about me that are that seek to smear my name. I have had bomb threats at uh, uh, public speaking events I've done. I've had people threaten to kill me. But, you know, if I made a dossier of all of these threats and all of these, uh, you know, bad articles and I went to the to the Ida refugee camp in Beit Lahim and I told them, look what they're saying about me, they would go tell me to fuck myself because... It's never going to compare to living under military occupation. In fact, it is a luxury for me to be able to sit here and speak. It is, despite it being exhausting, it's it's my role. It's it's important, and it's it's not about me. It's not about me, and I'm not going to make it about me or about about you know. Later, I'll go to therapy. For now, I have a you know I have work to do. What are the stories that you wish were discussed by the BBC, CNN, The Guardian, The New York Times? What do you wish we were talking about when it came to Palestine? You know, the, the sheer absurdity of what's happening. I'm telling you, this is not a complicated conflict and it is commercialized to be. Um, the thing I told you about the settler judge, the thing I told you about the Long Island fraudster who's squatting on my home, the thing I told you about these settler organizations that explicitly say they want to take home after home to make the entirety of Jerusalem a Jewish city, who say this explicitly, the sheer absurdity of uh, many, many things. Those are, those are things, but people don't want to talk about them because then the viewer, people treat their viewers, their readers, their audience, they treat them as though they're stupid. That's what it is. They treat them as though they're stupid because if they were telling people, you know, I'm not, if they were telling people the facts, people would just make up their minds. It's not so, but you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't even want to ask the New York Times or the BBC to, cur to cur curate their content for me. I don't want them to do me any favors. I don't want them to be courageous. I just want them to do their jobs. None of these people who are so-called journalists are doing, uh, are doing, what we learn in journalism school are, are purporting with journalistic integrity about the the disparity of power, about what's happening on the ground. Um, when you're quoting, uh, when you're writing an article and in the article you're only quoting s police officials and army officials, you are not a journalist, you're a stenographer. You're a state secretary, that's what you are, buddy. The thing which I find crazy is that it is internationally recognised that journalists are supposed to have some kind of protected status. And all of the journalists who are covering these issues go, we should have this protected status. It's really important. Look at these despotic regimes that don't protect uh, the right of journalists to report. And then the IDF drops bombs on the Associated Press building in Gaza Um you know, you've you've got journalists who are being killed, international journalists and also Palestinian journalists. And suddenly all of this liberal outrage about the treatment of journalists by despotic regimes disappears. I mean, do you find that crazy that the establishment consensus around Israel is so powerful that journalists can't even stand up for themselves? I think journalists can and should stand up for themselves. I think many of them are spineless, in my opinion. And I think uh, uh, this liberal outrage has nothing to do with a principled stance that believes in the freedom of journalism. It has all to do with protecting its strategic interests in the reason. And the Israeli occupation state is a valued ally of the UK and the USA. And these responses... Um, are completely in line with the allyship. I mean, we saw British journalists roam the streets of Ukraine showcasing Ukrainian citizens 
making Molotov cocktails to fight and defend against the Russians. We saw the New York Post hail a Ukrainian soldier who committed a suicide bombing as a hero, a war hero. We saw it. I saw the headline. I saw the New York Times run an article with a Ukrainian psychologist who advised Ukrainian citizens that hate, that hating Russians is a healthy and natural reaction to occupation. These journalists and these journalism outlets understand everything that they disregard as activist talk when it comes to Palestine. They understand occupation. They understand the right to defend and resist against occupation. They understand these things. That was actually my next question. You're such a prick, man. I was going to ask you that and sound like I was the smart one. Um, I want to ask a question about resistance, because I think me and you are definitely in agreement that there is no moral equivalence between the violence of occupation, the violence of ethnic cleansing, the violence of apartheid, and the violence of resisting illegal occupation, apartheid, and ethnic cleansing. But when we're talking about resistance, are there any lines at all, right? Morally for you, are there any lines where you can look at that and go, well, that's been crossed. That was wrong to target this population, or this is an act of violence, which I don't think should have happened. Um, The proportionality in which resistance occurs um, in Palestine or, you know, the amount of times resistant operations occur in Palestine is certainly not proportional to how many times it is reported on. Um, Anytime a Palestinian decides to commit a violent act of resistance, it will be in the headlines internationally. But anytime a Palestinian is killed, that will not be in the headlines. We are told time and time again that Palestinian death is normalized and it is okay as long as it is committed by people in uniform by people acting according to protocol, by people who we fund globally. Um, so I don't even think I have think I have a a, a say in what in what what and what not can a, a population that is constantly depopulated, that is constantly brutalized, that is con- constantly berated on the international stage. Uh, do I have no say, and no one has, not an academic, not not a TV pundit, nobody has a say in what uh, Palestinians or any other occupied, besieged, colonized population can and can't do to defend itself. Um, we are, we are l- literally being ethnically cleansed in real time. Um, our communities are encircled by colonies and military outposts and police departments. We are shrinking. Our properties are built on top of each other. Meanwhile, Jewish-only settlements are expanding and turning up every new day. Meanwhile, Jewish-only roads continue to fill our country. And that should be the focal point. I think these, these questions about uh, resistance tend to be sometimes ahistorical. We pretend as though the Palestinian people are the only people so who I su- have done so. So I suppose that was why I was asking. Is I was thinking about Algeria and thinking about the process of Algerian independence, thinking about the Battle of Algiers, thinking about the actions of the FLN. And it's depicted, I think, incredibly in uh, Gilo Pontecorvo's The Battle of Algiers. Incredible film. If you guys haven't watched it, you really should. And it's an unflinching look at the violence of resistance. And it looks, I think, at the humanity of the people who carry out those acts of resistance. There's this really beautiful extended sequence of three Algerian women disguising themselves as Westerners so they can carry out these acts. And there's this real painful humanity to it because they're dyeing their hair, they're doing their hair, they're looking at themselves in the mirror. And as a woman, you recognize that process of getting ready. It invites empathy. And they place bombs in three locations. One's an Air France office, one is a milk bar, the other's a cafe. And it does so in a way which doesn't flinch away from the humanity of those who are then caught up in those bombings. 
Now, it doesn't treat the violence of occupation and the violence of resisting the occupation as equivalent in the film at all, but it doesn't let you turn away from the humanity that is impacted by those acts of resistance. So I'm not asking you to sit here and defend Hamas or you know sit here and account for blah, blah, blah. But it's going, how do you, especially as a poet and as a writer, how do you make sense of the humanity that exists on the other side, even though you believe in the legitimacy of the resistance? I don't, I'm not interested in sympathizing with the people that put me in, like that keep me in a cage and that keep millions and millions of my countrymen in a cage. Um, <laughs> it's not, it's not interesting to me to, to, to think about that. These are people who've spent at least three years of their lives raiding our homes and life wanting our children and shooting us in the streets. These are people who majorly support keeping us in a cage, keeping us in an open air prison, keeping us locked up behind an apartheid wall. I, I don't think it's uh, logical or even necessary for me to worry about them. God, God bless them, any of us. Do you, do you feel that there's a role for, say, that there's, you know, a young left-wing Israeli who finds themselves disgusted by the occupation, the system of apartheid? Do you think that there is a role for them in a movement which is for the cause of Palestinian liberation? Or is the colonial nature of Israel so total that it's impossible for an Israeli to participate in the cause of Palestinian liberation? You know, in the past weeks, we have been seeing, in the past months, we have been seeing millions or hundreds of thousands at least of Israelis taking on to the quiet, serene, upper middle class streets of Tel Aviv to protest in favor of their so-called democracy. And what the world doesn't realize about this so-called democracy, first of all, is that it doesn't exist. But what, what they don't realize is that these protests are aiming to to defend the Israeli Supreme Court, right, against the governmental judicial overhaul. And they portray the Israeli Supreme Court as this beacon of democracy and justice and freedom. But if you look at the Israeli Supreme Court, you, you see it as this body that was built by settlers to serve settlers for the sole purpose of facilitating, bureaucratizing, and legalizing the ethnic cleansing, even genocide of Palestinians. You look and you, you could look anywhere on the map and you will find the fingerprints of the Israeli Supreme Courts all over the Israeli government's settler colonial enterprises and apartheid regime and military occupation. I mean, this is the same Supreme Court that has upheld the family unification law, which prevents Palestinian couples of different legal statuses from living together as families. This is the same Supreme Court that just recently ruled to expel the 1,300 Palestinians from Masafariyatta. This is the same Supreme Court that upheld the legality of the Israeli nation state law, which promotes Jewish settlement as a national value. This is the sup same Supreme Court that upheld the legality of holding the, the corpses of slain Palestinians to be used as bargaining chips. This is the same Supreme Court. I can go on and on and on. It has its fingerprints all over our blood and misery. And this is what the Israeli left is defending. And Another example of what the Israeli left d does is that they make their little PowerPoints and they go on speaking tours in, the, in New York and in, in, in London and they talk about how much, uh, how many children they have terrorized and how many homes they have demolished and how guilty their consciousness are. Because knowing, they were conscripted. Yeah, they were in, in the army knowing that they are protected, knowing that nothing, they're never going to be held to account, knowing that the way in which they do these, they set up these organizations, they're not going to have to face legal action for their crimes. Um, another way the Israeli left operates is that they come to our houses on Friday and they hold their signs and they feel good about themselves and, and they eat ma'lube and they eat our food and they feel good about themselves. What the Israeli left can do is that they can go work in their communities that's where it is. They can all refuse to uh, serve in the military. I don't give a shit if, if they have to go to the army for a few weeks or a couple of months. 
um, I would go to the uh, I, sorry to, to prison. I would go to prison in a heartbeat if I, if I if I had to choose between going to prison and killing someone. I mean, it's not it's not. I mean, they can go. They can fight their their army general uncles on the on the dinner table, but they don't do that. I mean, some I'm sure some of them do, but the vast majority of the Israeli left takes an easy an easy route out of this to, to feel good about themselves. And honestly, we must we must admit that if if Israelis were to contend with their role in the Israeli occupation and were to fight against the Israeli occupation, they would be giving up a comfortable, luxurious life. It is privilege. The Israeli occupation is incredibly profitable for them. One of the things that I want to discuss are forms of Palestinian resistance which don't make the news. Yeah. What are the forms of daily Palestinian resistance which those of us who consume English language media will know nothing about? Well, there's certainly a chasm in general between the English and the Arabic language in which we talk about Palestine. It's not just... Uh, it's, it's not, not just, just my terrible pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, it's not just your terrible pronunciation. There's a complete things that are completely normalized in in arabic we have to tiptoe around and dance around in english we have to perform for a western audience whose ethnocentricity um, prevents them from identifying with our humanity um, and so we we revert to this humanization framework in which we overemphasize our women and children as though as though women are not active participants in the re resistance as, as though men are not mournable we 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 turn to these uh, terrible frameworks. So it's just, it's not just resistance. It's, it's quite literally everything. I and mean, it's people here have probably never set foot in the area, don't know any Palestinians. And then they, so many of them pretend as though they are experts on the matter. Um, but, you know, you know, I think cultural, cultural resistance is, plays a huge role in, in Palestine. Um, that's one thing. There's many things, but again, Palestinian people are racialized as Muslim and Muslims suffer Islamophobia on the global stage and they're never going to be invited to the table to, to, to talk. And we're not, we're not going to be, we're never going to be looked at as equals by the UK establishment or by the US establishment. Um, I mean, isn't there also an issue, I'm here talking a bit more about international politics than international media, which is when you've got the Abraham Accords, which have ended up with the United Arab Emirates selling out the Palestinian cause yeah. to a huge extent. So for our audience who might not be aware, it used to be the policy for the United Arab Emirates and lots of other Arab countries as well, that they would only normalize relations with Israel on the condition of the recognition of Palestinian statehood. And that's basically been dropped. There's a bit of lip service about uh, pressuring Israel to stop the expansion of illegal settlements, but everyone knows that's not really the case. And practically overnight, the money that was being pledged by the UAE towards um, the uh, UNRWA, the, the, the UN agency responsible for Palestinian refugees, was cut by 98%. And the reason why I'm giving all of this context for our viewers and the question I'm asking you is that isn't there a problem, which is you've got a global context of Islamophobia. Muslims are not invited to the table for their humanity and their political interest to be recognized as legitimate. But then you've also got a problem where the Gulf monarchies are selling out the Palestinian cause. And I suppose the question for you is, you know, is, is pan-Arab solidarity a myth? And Arab solidarity is certainly not not a myth, um, and I think uh, the vast majority of uh, the Arab populations do support Palestine. I think the vast majority of the Arab populations require political education so that we all get our facts straight and we all got our talking points straight. But you know, the Abrahamic Accords um, weren't shocking for many Palestinians because we grow up knowing that most Arab regimes talk to the Israeli regime behind the scenes. I mean, the, the siege against Gaza is not enacted by the Israeli state itself. It's enacted in partnership with Egypt, um, Jordan. I mean, I don't want to go to jail. Um, <laughs> but, 
you know, this has always been the case. They talk behind the scenes, but the need for these economic uh, partnerships became so dire that they, they, you know, took it public. But it's always been about economy. And I don't think these, uh, these Islamic regimes um, that have all kinds of issues and problems, I mean, do not get me started on the way they treat migrants and so on and so forth, are representative of what Arab people at large may feel. Um, this upper, this very upper class. So there's a people. difference between the actions of governments and the solidarity amongst people is the thing that you're talking I think about. So, I think so, yeah, universally. I mean, I, I want to talk a bit more about solidarity and international solidarity. Um, one of the things which has been going on here in the UK, but also more widely in Europe, is that the Palestinian cause has been either invisibilized at key moments. So when the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism was being implemented in the UK, there was not consultation and inclusion of the Palestinian perspective of how that impacts their ability to talk about their experiences. And when you do have expressions of solidarity with Palestine, for instance, waving Palestinian flags at Labour Party conference, that's seen as an anti-Semitic provocation. So my question for you is, do you see that there is a strategic weaponization of anti-Semitism obviously, obviously, to shut down solidarity? Oh my God, obviously. I think it's, uh, it is about time we... If I sat up here and I accused you of eating human flesh or accused you of reverse racism, you would not give me the time of day. That should be the attitude and the cultural sentiment towards accusing people that live under the rule of another people who choose to march under a certain flag of anti-Semitism. And so, but I guess the thing I'm talking about is like more widely than just impacting Palestinians. I'm talking about Any the people. policing of, of solidarity with Palestinians, where to be, say, an English person with the Palestinian flag is you go, ah, that's an anti-Semite. So it's not just... Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a it's, a, it is, it's, it is weaponized. I, I mean, I think it's about time we acknowledge the sinister weaponization of anti-Semitism. I mean... They know that yani, the, Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, the, the guy who goes and cries about anti-Semitism every Monday and Tuesday is the same guy who will go on stage and happily shake hands and hug John Hagee, an evangelical pastor who praises Hitler on stage, who says that their mission is to remove all Jewish people from the United States. Israel has no problem making and keeping and connecting and strengthening and bolstering ties with anti-Semitic people, anti-Semitic organizations, and anti-Semitic states, if it serves its interests, using these uh, attacks against advocates for Palestinian liberation is a bad faith smear campaign. And I think we we ought to be a, we we ought to be a little bit more brave and courageous in confronting them. We ought to not give them the time of day because they are again a fallacy of debate. They are seeking to distract you from the main point that is the military occupation. And honestly, quite frankly. I am shocked and outraged that we are willing to put aside the material violence of the Israeli occupation, the institutionalized violence of the settler colonial enterprise. This, the fact that this is a systemic thing that affects millions of people bodily, the fact, the fact that it's a physical form of violence, we, pu we put it aside so that we can investigate some people's sentiment that may or may not lie within their hearts. This equation of sentimental violence and military and institutional material violence is insane. And when we give these baseless accusations the time of day, we are only giving them more weight. We are only legitimizing them further. Um, it is insane that it's insane and stupid and it's bizarre to accuse somebody of being anti-Semitic for the mere reason that they believe that people should not be kept in cages for the mere reason that they believe people should have freedom of movement, that for the mere reason that they believe land shouldn't be stolen, that people ha should have a right to defend themselves and uh, have a right to resist. So you should have voting rights when you're being governed by, I don't know, a, a, a regime that you should yeah. have them. Um, 
Do you think that there's something to do with European guilt? Because ex- moving beyond the UK for a second, in Germany, 170 protesters were arrested on Nakba Day. Yeah. And Germany's anti-Semitism laws, which are very, very strict and tightly drawn, are disproportionately used to shut down expressions of Palestinian solidarity and also shut down the expressions of Palestinian solidarity by, in particular, Germany's Muslim citizens. Do you think that that is just a misplaced expression of European guilt for the events of the 1930s and 1940s? Or is that something that's coming because of pressure from Israel and Israeli advocacy groups? What's going on here? Um, you know, like these things do not exist in a vacuum. I mean, sure, I think the European guilt angle is is uh, is a good one and maybe they should go to therapy. Um, but it's more than this. It's not just that there's Israeli groups exerting pressure in against the German government. It's the fact that these people are in partnership with one another. They serve each other regional interests. Um, Germany needs the Israeli regime to, to continue to exist. So does the United States. Joe Biden has said it time and time again, if there was no Israel, we would have gone out and invented one because of the strategic ties, because of its importance for the US and the UK and Germany um, in, in the United States. So treating these baseless accusations as though they have hefty, like they are a hefty theoretical debate, treating them as though they have maybe room is insane to me because we are missing the point. We are missing the fact that there is over 6 million people today under a brutal regime of military occupation under a siege. Um, and leftists, um, activists, progressives, well-meaning journalists and academics and scholars are ought to be brave or ought to be a little bit more brave because I understand that nobody wants to be accused of bigotry. And it's going to come at a career loss at... It's going to come at an academic prospect loss. It might be damaging for your reputation, blah, blah, blah. But it will never be. The circumstances you are going to face for being accused of bigotry are never going to be as dire as the circumstances of those living under military occupation. And I need to remind people, if we look at any atrocity that took place across history, when there was opposition against the atrocity, people did not get up and started cheering and congratulating the opposition. Those who opposed any kinds of injustice across history have faced scrutiny, have faced persecution, uh, prosecution also have faced all kinds of bad faith smear campaigns. It's not easy to be on the right side of history. I've got one final question sure. for you. When you think about a liberated Palestine, a free Palestine, what does that look like to you? Yeah, and this could be uh, this could be a really long uh, day for us both here. Um, I'm also like not very fond of the idea of states. I don't, give a, I don't give much thought about borders. Blah blah. blah. I know that there is over six million Palestinian refugees in refugee camps around the world in Lebanon. Uh, Palestinian children in refugee camps sometimes cannot even touch the walls of the camp because. The wires, electricity wires are so exposed and they could be electrocuted to death. I know that there are thousands of Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli jails, um, many of whom are held without charge or trial under the draconian administrative detention policy. I know that there are hundreds of thousands of Palestinian families who do not know if they're going to keep their home another week. I know that there are Palestinian boys who walk around Jerusalem fearing that they're going to be shot in any second. In a liberated Palestine, none of this would happen. People would have um, dignity and freedom and people would have joy and laughter and diversity of thought and diversity of religion. Um, that's what a liberated Palestine looks like to me. But I want to say oftentimes, you know, this question, what does a liberated Palestine look like to you is, you know, code for, you know, what's going to happen to the settlers? Are you going to throw them in the sea? Blah, blah, blah. And for those, for those who have that instinct to ask that question, I want to challenge them to ask themselves, have you ever asked yourself what's going to happen to the Palestinian refugees? Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mohammed. Pleasure, of course. Anytime.
support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarromedia.com forward slash support.